Among the community of copywriters we're familiar with, there seems to be quite a few copywriters who started their careers as teachers. And when you think about it, copywriting and content writing is teaching. We teach clients about marketing, we teach customers how to solve their own problems, and we teach each other how to get better. Today's guest for the 213th episode of the Copywriter Club podcast is Francis Nyan, a member of our Think Tank Mastermind, who began his career as a kindergarten teacher and today teaches his clients how to make more money with email. We'll share our discussion with Francis in a moment, but first, this episode is brought to you by the copywriter Think Tank that Kira just mentioned. That's our high-level mastermind group for copywriters and marketers who want to challenge each other, create new revenue streams in their business, receive one-on-two coaching from the two of us, and ultimately build the business that you want to build. The Think Tank is open right now for a few select new members. Visit copywriterthinktank.com or email help at thecopywriterclub.com to learn more. Let's get to our interview with Francis. Francis, welcome to the podcast. We're excited to be talking to you today. And maybe the best way to start this is just by sharing your story, how you became a copywriter. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for having me. I got to say, this is like super momentous for me. I'm not sure if that's the word. It's just like when I first started, it was like the copywriter club was like the first place I ever went to. So super proud to be here. But yeah, just uh, I guess how I started um, you know, as a copywriter, it was something that uh, you know, I kind of got out of desperation, kind of fell upon and kind of the thing I was doing for, for quite a while. You know, um, around three years ago, I was still teaching English in a, in a school here in Hungary. And it just so happened that I was really looking forward to, you know, trying to find something different, trying to find a new way to you know take my career and like my whole life path and I didn't really know where to go but I don't know I guess the computers were listening to me reading my mind and then I started getting like these advertisements on like you know how to make money online and how to be a freelancer and I didn't even know it was like a thing and you know, I didn't really act on it for quite a while you know I was doing a little bit of writing here and there for my friends because they knew I did some writing in, in college and in high school um, and one of these days, you know, one of my friends just said, Francis, you should be a copywriter. And, and I had no idea what a copywriter was. And he said that. And I was like, you know, I know nothing about law. You know, I was thinking he was talking about like copyright law or something. So I didn't really think about it again for, you know, quite some time. And then it wasn't until I actually met a guy at a meetup here in Budapest who you know, he was like a young German guy who was able to travel and work on his laptop and you know, do some writing and asked him, you know, what he does. And he said, you know, I'm a copywriter. And just from there, you know, that's kind of where I, I learned a whole lot about what copywriting was and just kind of jumped right into it. And yeah, the journey kind of just started right there. Okay. And roughly what, what year was that? When was that? This was around 2017. This was like late 2017. So it wasn't that long ago, I'd say. So I've only been in the game for, I guess, relatively short time. So when you met this this guy at the meetup, what once you the idea clicked and you're like, oh, it's it's copywriting and it's freelance. What did you do after meeting him to get it going? Yeah. So with him, I we me and him actually just kept in touch for a while, and I was just like, you know, 
what are some of the resources you suggest? Are there any books? You know, he sent me a bunch of YouTube videos and he sent me some books and some, uh, you know, some PDFs on, you know, how to start and where to begin. And I just had no clue, you know, what to do. So I would go online and, you know, kind of look up where to start. And it all just started off with like, you know, create like an upward profile and go on like these job boards. And you know, I had no idea what I was doing. It was like true imposter syndrome. You know, I made a profile and it said, you know, I'm a content writer slash copywriter, even though I never wrote you know, anything before. And for me, it was, you know, looking back now, it's actually really funny because I would, you know, uh, apply to these job postings and it wasn't even a very good proposal. It was almost like a really lame, like Facebook message. It was just like, Hey, saw that you're looking for, uh, you know, someone to write this thing for you. But yeah, eventually somebody actually decided to take a chance on me. And, you know, my first, my first project was like this 500 word blog post in it. And I only got paid like $5 from it. But, you know, I still remember the, the first time I got that PayPal notification that said that uh, I got paid $5 and I was like so excited. And, you know, I think when I got that first, like that first like payment, even though it was like really small, you know, it was on Upwork. So they would take like 20% off. So it was really more like $4 and then like sending it to my PayPal or whatever. It was like, it was more like $3. So but I remember getting that first like you know, I guess that first hit of dopamine, I'm like, oh, I can actually do this. And I remember thinking, oh, I have a business now. This is really exciting. So I think that really solidified everything that, you know, I'm going to do this for the long haul. So Francis, tell us, you know, how do you go from that first project to then lining up, you know, the next project or filling your schedule so that you're working full time as a copywriter? Yeah, it took a long time. You know, I kind of did the whole meat and potatoes way. There was no program. There was no mentorship or anything. It was really kind of sticking to Upwork for a while. And, you know, I was still working part-time in the kindergarten at this time. And I think it's like probably good to mention that once I decided that I was going to be a freelancer, I uh, cut my hours working at the school and just went, you know, just part-time. And so just so I can dedicate more time to, to writing copy and trying to get clients. But yeah, it all, you know, I kind of built up my portfolio by you know, doing free projects, by cold emailing businesses that, you know, I thought were cool. A lot of them, I mean, I'm, it was just kind of crazy times. You know, I was like, I felt like a, like a cowboy in the wild west, just kind of sending proposals left and right, I had no clue where to go. And, you know, I wasn't landing anything, to be honest, for a long time, if anything, it was like, still like these super small payments, but I was still grateful for it, you know, and I was still really happy that I had something. And it wasn't until I would say six months in that I actually had a parent uh, from the school I was working at who contacted me over Instagram DM. And he said, you know, I noticed that you put your copywriter on your Instagram bio. Um, my company's actually looking for a copywriter. You know, if you'd like to apply, then go for it. I'll vouch for you. And I know I felt like he was kind of doing me a favor because I was like his son's best friend, as you said. But, you know, I remember kind of applying for this and, you know, understanding what was involved, but also just being completely terrified because I've never done anything before, you know, this big. But I remember two weeks later, you know, it, I got this interview and I found out that it was this 
full contact fight league. And, you know, they were, they had, you know, all these people working who originally worked with like Facebook and Buzzfeed and ESPN and UFC. And yeah, I mean, a week later I was offered the, the, the position as their brand copywriter. And from there I kind of took off and it was just kind of like, I was kind of being thrown to the lions almost, but you know, it was one of the, one of the best experiences I think anyone could ever have. So when you jumped into that role, was it a, more of a retainer gig? And are you, are you still there? No longer working there. I think I was only with them for six months, you know, and it was a really, really intense time because, um, you know, I just jumped right in and they were having me travel to their fight nights. So I was able to go to, to Greece for an event and then up to New York City. And then we also had something planned for Japan until, you know, I decided to leave because of, you know, I didn't really, I felt like I was actually, I wasn't really flourishing in the, the writing that I was doing there, especially around like month five or six, I was kind of like stuck with just like the copy templates that the, that they kind of gave me. And I was thinking, this isn't what I want to do. Um, I've learned a lot here. I made a lot of connections, but I think there's definitely something else out there for me. Okay. Yeah. So let's continue that story then. What happened after that? Once you realized I need to continue to learn, but this isn't the right place. What did you do next? Yeah, what I did next was pretty much said yes to everything. So, you know, I was still kind of applying for positions on Upwork. I started posting value in like Facebook groups. I started just like cold DMing people on Instagram and just applying to anything and everything that I just wanted to get reference experience in. You know, I wanted to just write and build my portfolio and just get experience. Um, and for me, that was just, I learned so many, so many lessons. And during that time that I think are so valuable still to this day. And, you know, looking back, it was really difficult because I was like scrounging up pretty much egg and bread money with, you know, that was like all I could really afford at the time, but I was still able to make connections with people through social media and through referral clients that I was able to finally kind of niche down even more and focus in on, I guess, the kind of copy and business that I wanted to have. So when you talk about the lessons that you learned, uh, you just mentioned niching, you mentioned you know, making connections. What else, uh, you know, what else did you learn as you were going through this really intense process of basically looking for work everywhere you could find it? Yeah. I mean, probably the biggest lesson was that, you know, I was trying to think about what kind of business I wanted to have, how much money I wanted to make, what kind of copy I wanted to write. So then I started to think about, you know, who is this person that I want to be in six months from now? And how does that person act? You know, if I want to make this amount of money, you know, what, how does this person who makes this amount of money, you know, acts, you know, what is involved in his work day and what kind of habits does he have? And, you know, call it, you know, whatever the law of attraction, call it the secret or something like that. But I really do think there's like something there in which if you just keep showing up every day and you change your habits, then opportunities just kind of come, you know, and I think we're, this was about a year and a half ago where I think I started getting higher paying clients and work that I actually really like to do and started to have a better understanding 
on who I wanted to work with. I like this idea around stepping into the the role that you want to have and creating this new identity for yourself and changing your habits. Can you give us some specific examples of the habits that you were changing and how you were doing this at that time? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I actually changed pretty much my entire life anytime I just, when I decided to buckle down. And, <laughs> no big deal. You just changed yeah. your entire life. Yeah, exactly. You know, so I live in Budapest, which is like kind of a known, you know, bustling kind of party town. It's a lot of tourists and it's a really fun city. So one of the things I did was like, you know, I stopped kind of going out on the weekends for a bit and I started waking up early and, you know, tracking how much time I was working and was just thinking, you know, if maybe I might not have any paying clients right now, but I'm going to work and, you know, market myself as if that's my job. So, yeah, I would like to start waking up at like 5 a.m. and you know, go to the gym and, you know, do all those like personal development habits with like, you know, the water with like the lemon and, you know, stretching and journaling and all that stuff. And then I would just go to the, the, to the nearby cafe and, you know, start sending out cold pitches, just pretty much hustling out to connect with, with anyone. And I would just do that all day, or at least until, you know, 5, 6, 7 p.m. And I would call it a day. And I would just dedicate so much time to that, that it just started to compound. Eventually, I was getting responses from agencies, from other solo entrepreneurs, from small businesses who were saying, all right, well, let's, I'll take a chance on you. You know, what's your rate? And, you know, what kind of copy do you want to do? So in time, everything started to kind of come together. Obviously, yeah, you were hustling hard, but what does your business look like today? What's the end product of all of that hustle? Yeah, the end product now is that I guess it's, I do have really great financial stability and yeah, I don't really have to hustle anymore. So the, the past few months, my main goal was to stop working on the weekends. And if I, you know, if I am working on the weekends, it's usually because I'm bored. It's because like I'm you know, having a lazy Sunday afternoon. I might as well just crank out some copy or I might get my emails ready for the week or um, I might get on a call with you know someone in my mastermind that I'm in or you know, speak with a friend who can help me out with a certain thing. So, you know, I'm no longer, you know, kicking my ass and working seven days a week and I have more freedom of time and, you know, financial freedom as well. And I also have the, the freedom to, kind of pick and choose who I want to work with. So I'm not necessarily saying yes you know, to everything and to every opportunity. You know, I get to choose who I want to work with and, you know, what kind of impact I want to make. And, you know, it's a really good feeling. You know, looking back at it now about where I was a year and a half ago, I was still like super happy. You know, I loved going all out, even those times where I had like, no money and I think my all my meals consisted of like eggs and toast. You know, it's it's kind of funny to look back now and see you know, kind of the journey that kind of happened within the last year and a half, two years or so. But yeah, right now it's um, there's a lot of freedom and yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, and you've done it relatively fast. I mean, like you were saying, you're really getting started with copywriting in 2017. Um, you've had a lot of success in a short period of time. So when you look back, it seems like some of those key ingredients are hustling, 
creating these new habits, um, cold pitching. And when you look back, do you feel like that's just part of the journey you have to go through and every copywriter has to go through? Or could there have been some things you did differently to maybe not have to hustle as hard or um, to move even faster or make it a little bit easier along the way? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't think every copywriter, every freelancer kind of has to go through those long hours in the beginning. I think one of the best things that I have now and that I wish I had back then was just, you know, the, the, the idea to invest in mentorships and in a mastermind and to be with a group of people or just one person who can hold me accountable on these goals and to you know, speak with me you know, once a week, once every two weeks, even what, once a month to hash things out and to yeah, connect on business and work and how to write better copy. I'm not sure why it took me so long, but you know, it's something that I think is probably one of the best investments for anyone. Um, even just that, that little bit of accountability in a Slack group and kind of hearing and reading other people's success stories, what's, you know, what they're doing, what's worked, what hasn't worked. It, it shifts your mindset and it shifted my mindset um, into, you know, to the kind of business owner that I wanted to be. So now I don't think every freelancer has to like go out there and, you know, hustle 12 hours a day and cold pitch. I think, you know, if you have, a lot enough drive and you listen well and you take good direction and you have clear goals then you know you can really expedite your journey you know as fast as you really want to yeah i mean i think if anyone is listening to this and they're just starting out you know, definitely invest in a mentorship and even just like a free accountability group you could definitely see exponential growth in everything you do just with that Long-time listeners to the podcast will know that Kira and I are big fans of masterminds. We met in a mastermind and uh, we have our own masterminds, which uh, we mentioned already that you're in one of them. But Francis, you know, it's one thing to talk about like the mindset or the support that you get, but can you quantify, you know, what you've done in the mastermind groups and the, the mentoring relationships that you've had? How has that affected your business money-wise and project-wise? Oh yeah. Um, well, money-wise, I mean, everything, I think I even told you a few weeks ago that even within the past nine months to a year, my money has just 6 x almost, I guess, 10X, I think, depending on which month you want to go back, you know, a year ago. Um, it's just the amount of, you know, the amount of value you get in these groups and the people you're working with, they really just push you. You know, you have your mentors who, inv you who invest their their time, um, you know, into you, and that really just pushes you. You know, you're also interacting with people and talking to people who are in the same position you are, and it's really freeing, you know, to kind of nerd out over having a business or copy or you know dealing with, you know, shitty clients or you know having cool projects or here you know this or that. Um, all of that just kind of pushes you to the next level. And then, of course, when you interact with people who are in the same position as you, you bounce you bounce ideas off of each other, and you learn from each other. You learn a whole lot about yourself. You know, I know for me, the the type of people I've worked with, just within the past few months being in the think tank, it's 
just crazy. You know, I feel like I'm really making more of an impact with uh, the copy that I'm writing and who I'm working with. And yeah, I mean, it's really exciting just because I'm really zeroing in on who I want to work with and I'm able to make those connections better because now the people I work with can lead me to even more clients who, yeah, who are more aligned with you know, who I want to work with. And yeah, it's really awesome. As I was listening to Francis describe that first dopamine hit that he got when he landed his first client and he was talking about how it was only $5 for, you know, for, for the work that he did. And once all the fees are taken out, it's more like $3. So it's hardly anything at all, but you still get that hit, that excitement. It got me thinking about my first client and I'm not even sure if I've ever heard about your first client, Kira. Do you remember the first dopamine hit that you got when you realized that you could make money as a copywriter? I do. Yeah. These are things we, we should talk about more often, Rob. Um, I, my first client was Alyssa Burkis, who's actually a member in our underground. And um, I met her through the startup gig I was working for at the time as a marketing director. And so I was doing a lot of copywriting and it had not yet hit me that I was a copywriter. And Alyssa was building her own website at the time and saw something in me uh, to the point where she asked me to write some of her website copy and she paid me for it. So I think that was the first moment and boost of confidence I received from her when she was like, Hey, I want to pay you for this. And you're a copywriter, by the way. But I also remember the first one that was from a stranger, uh, someone who showed up on my website. I had no idea who they were and they wanted to hire me. And that was also really exciting because I think while it's really important to start with people you know, and that gives you a big boost of confidence, the first time someone reaches out to you and you have no idea who they are, but they've heard about you, that's also really exciting. You're like, wow, that's and you're, you want to pay me, but you don't know me? And that was for a website project. I remember I charged $750 for like, I don't know, a five-page website, maybe even a seven-page website. $750. <laughs> Which seems seems ridiculously low, but all, I mean, compared I so to $5, happy. yeah, compared to $5, that's pretty good. Yeah, I was so happy at the time. What about you, Rob? So I, I think I've shared this before, but my first project that I ever did as a copywriter, before I even really knew that copywriting was a thing, was uh, a project that I got from a friend that I had met at a party. She was a copywriter. She was freelancing for a couple of companies around town, and uh, she offered to you know share one of her projects with me. And I didn't even know what I was doing. She just, you know, said, Hey, you know, write about this particular project for this company. And I, uh, I got $500 for that. I actually used that $500 to buy myself a computer so that I could do more writing, you know? So I, it was, you know, an old, uh, it was maybe a 286 or a 186 PC is really old. The only thing it could really do was, was, you know, Word documents or whatever. So um, but that was my first project. And it was really the only freelance project that I took because after that, I knew that I wanted to um, to do copywriting. And the company that I was working for actually, like within a couple of weeks of me taking on that project, they opened up two jobs for copywriters as they were expanding their creative department. And I got one of those and that kind of launched me into, you know, the, the world of copywriting within uh, in-house creative groups. And then I was at an agency for a while and then at a, another in-house group. So uh, I didn't do a lot of freelancing those first couple of years, but that first project, $500, I remember it well. 
Yeah, always exciting. Those first projects are always exciting. So um, what else stood out to you as Francis was kind of digging into his habits and talking about his progress? So I think one of the things that jumped out here to me was when Francis was talking about being more intentional about what he wanted to do with his business. And uh, I think he did it relatively early, you know, trying to figure out how he would specialize or the kinds of clients that he would work with and being very intentional about that early on. I think that's something that sometimes as we're starting out, we just kind of let things happen to us. I certainly did that with my career. You know, I, maybe I should have been freelancing more early on. Um, but I, you know, after I got a job working in house, I just kind of let things come to me and learn things as I need to learn them. And I think Francis's approach to intentionality is, uh, really commendable and maybe something that more of us should be doing. Yeah. And because we've worked with Francis in the think tank, we've been able to get to know him well over the past year. And I think what he does really well, which you'll see throughout the entire conversation, is just being very intentional about the way that he shows up in his day-to-day life and the the decisions he makes about his business that um, show that he has a really deep level of awareness of who he is, what his strengths are, uh, what doesn't work for him, what does work for him. And so I think it starts with this part of the conversation about those habits and becoming, creating habits that help you become the type of business owner you want to be. And I know, I think uh, I hone in on the fact that he drinks water with lemon um, as part of his morning routine, but I just, I don't know. I really like that part of it. I feel like every time I hear it, I'm like, I should do that. Why am I not drinking water with lemon every morning? Maybe that would make me a better copywriter. I think the other thing too about intentionality, you know, is when he was talking about how much he hustled and how much he, you know, worked weekends and all of that. And that's something that we heard from Amon, you know, obviously Amon's in a situation where she's building something. I should mention, we interviewed Amon a few weeks ago on the podcast and talked about, you know, the hustle culture or whatever. But we hear this a lot from copywriters who are um, not necessarily building platforms or, you know, products or that, but they're just working all the time and they feel like, they have this need to work weekends, you know, to work nights, whatever. And I like that Francis recognized that relatively early on and has you know, backed himself out of, of that full-time hustle. And maybe you've got some thoughts around that as well. Well, it seems like that's a question that copywriters in our think tank have asked us like, hey, I've noticed that a lot of the top or like well-known copywriters in the space seem to like always be on or always be visible and hustling and working hard. Does this, does this ever get a little easier? And that's kind of the question that I've been asked. Um, and I do think there's, I don't know, maybe a perception problem around like, again, the hustle culture where it's still, it's still quite prevalent, uh, even in the copywriter space. And so, um, I like that when Francis joined the think tank, he wanted to break away from that. And he was like, I am working seven days a week. I want to build a life and business where I'm not doing that. So a lot of times when we, when we work with people at the mastermind level, we're helping them work less. Uh, but I do think that when you're building your business in the early days, I, I find it hard to believe that you can not have a little bit of hustle in there. Um, and hard work and grit in the early part of your business to make a name for yourself, to market more heavily while you're taking jobs that might not be paying as well. So you have to take more of those jobs. I think you can get through that period uh, faster if you're smart about it, the same way that Francis has been smart about it and other copywriters have been smart about it. So I think it can get easier once you get through that tough part where you're not getting enough leads. So you just kind of have to keep your foot on the gas pedal 
but it does like it does get easier, right? Um, after that stage, if you see people who are constantly like on the go and pushing and hustling, it's because they're making intentional decisions about growing their business. So I think it also depends on the pace that you want to grow, um, how frequently you're pivoting. And um, some, you know, if you're more ambitious and more aggressive in that space, you probably are keeping your foot on the gas pedal for a longer period of time. But that's your decision. Like, we don't have to do that. You can choose to build a business at a different pace and have um, the type of life that you want. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I mean, there are all kinds of things that play into this that we don't have time to go into, you know, the way that we set up our packages, the way that we price ourselves, the, the kinds of clients that we're working with and where we're finding clients and attracting clients, all of that plays into our ability to take time off, not just on the weekends and the evenings, but, you know, even sometimes just to say, hey, it's Wednesday and I don't feel like working today. I'm just going to go and, you know, go hang out with my kids at the park, or I'm going to go to a movie, or I'm going to sit and read a book and yeah, all of those things sort of play into that freedom that we have. And once we dial them in, and that's why we teach those things, you know, in the underground, in the accelerator, because once we can dial those things in, we have a much more productive business that actually supports our lifestyle. And we're not, we're not working for the business, but the business is supporting us. That is definitely a bigger conversation. Maybe we can save for another time. Okay. So let's get back to the interview and talk a little bit more about habits. Do you still have those same habits that you created a couple of years ago that really have changed your identity or, you know, what are some of the new habits that are important to you today if they have changed? Yeah. So a lot of the habits that I kind of adopted like a year and a half ago, I still do. And, you know, of course it's not perfect. I'm not doing it. It's not like I, I do it every day or that I'm like 100% with them, but I do have those habits, you know, such as, you know, I'm a, I'm a member of the 5am club. And, you know, a lot of people really, you know, they're always like, oh, that's crazy. That's really early. And it really is. And it actually kind of sucks, and especially in the wintertime here in Budapest when it's like cold and it's nice and things like that. But it's, uh, you know, since I have like a creative job, you know, my, you know, my words is like, you know, everything to me and my mind is also, it's like that time when I wake up at 5 a.m., it's quiet. You know, there's no one else around. It's usually dark. And yeah, it really sells my mind and gets me ready for the day, especially you know, running a business in which I'm uh, juggling a handful of clients at a time and, you know, even more projects. It can be really easy to get stressed out and to be, you know, to feel that burnout, which has definitely happened. Um, but, you know, these habits kind of keep me grounded. You know, it's and yeah, all those habits that I've had a year ago. They've slightly been modified here and there. Um, you know, I guess some of the smaller things, like I'm not drinking like the lemon water. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was wondering. If you're still, are you still drinking lemon water? I That's noticed really you, didn't, you didn't mention the ice cold showers either. Oh yeah. Yeah. Are so, you doing that? Yeah. So this is like something that I don't know, maybe I'm like slightly masochistic and it's just like, I don't know what it is with it, but I always have to take like a cold shower. And so there was like a little running joke with uh, my friends and I that I haven't taken a warm shower since like summer 2019, early summer, because even when it was like wintertime here in Budapest and it was like below freezing, I would still like take a cold shower at like 530 in the morning. And 
it's still one of those habits that I have that even if I don't wake up at like 5am or something and I don't exercise or like read a little bit in the morning, I'm still going to take a cold shower. I think it's just, it's, it's, it feels good at this point. And I've probably watched like one too many Wim Hof videos or something, but yeah, I mean the, those habits are really good. I mean, it's, it, I think everyone, you know, every copywriter or um, every business owner should have these habits that keep them grounded. You know, they don't have to wake up at 5 a.m. I know plenty of people who are, um, you know, way more successful and way more organized than me who wake up at 10 a.m. and things like that. But I think just the, the power of habit is essential for anyone who wants to uh, succeed and thrive in their work. It just keeps you keeps you grounded and keeps you happy. You know, you start your day right and it ends even better. So, yeah. All right. So to to dig deeper into that too, uh, because I'm a little little bit obsessed with this now. Um, When you're up 5 a.m., you have your cold shower, which, you know, that's cool. I got my hot shower. You've got your cold shower. What is that early morning routine, writing routine look like for you if you have it? And it sounds like you probably do. Like, are you in the dark with a candle and you do morning pages and kind of just unload everything? Or are you working on client work or are you doing creative writing or something else? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I guess for the, my pre-writing routine, I guess, aside from like the, you know, those physical habits and things like that, you know, I always like to read copy before I write. And I have like a, a really good like swipe email account that just has, you know, all of these emails that I'm subscribed to. And of course leads me to you know, advertorials and sales pages and things like that. And I just like reading those. I read those for a good like 30 to 45 minutes um, just to get my mind like primed and ready to write and just to see what's out there. I like to see what's kind of what other copywriters are doing since you don't really see that like all the time, maybe amongst your peers. But um, that's part of like my routine. You know, if it's not like doing that, then I just like to read a book on really anything or just read uh you know, random medium articles or blog articles, just anything to get my, my mind ready to, you know, put some words down. It, it's really helpful. And it's almost like a, yeah, it's almost like putting on like my Superman cape to begin writing. I think I read a, I read a book like eight months ago called like the alter ego effect and how habits or like having this one little, uh, I don't know, item that you can like pick up or put on you. And it makes you feel like, you know, your, your superhero slash alter ego to, you know, just be better in whatever you're doing. Then it's like, yeah, once I read that book, it's like these habits mean so much more to me. So after I get done reading a little bit of some copy, then yeah, then it's just go time after that. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you on the habits. And uh, I kind of want to go back to where we were talking about your business. Uh, I'm really interested in the kinds of projects that you take today, what they look like and how much you're charging for them. Yeah. So I would say 80% of my work um, is stuck in, not stuck, but it's in writing emails. And so I do most of my work in either e-commerce or working with coaches. And with coaches, it's usually with um, business coaches, health and wellness, 
And lately, somehow, I've been doing a lot of dating coaches. And right now, it's uh, really focused on creating automations and creating their weekly newsletters. So it's pretty much their entire email marketing. And just because a lot of my, I guess, first long-term, my, my long-term work was uh, working with email marketing agencies and learning, I guess, the finer, port, finer points of good email marketing strategy. Um, that's where my work has kind of you know, driven to. So nowadays, that's where a lot of my freelance work uh, is at now. And yeah, I absolutely love it. And I've kind of nerded out over it. Um, you know, I just gave like a training the other day in the copywriter club about email deliverability. And I kind of surprised myself with just how much I kind of knew, but yeah, it's, uh, that's where my, my work is today. Definitely want to ask more about email deliverability, but before we do that, so when you structure a package, is it always custom or do you have, you know, like a five part email sequence and about what do you charge per email or per package? Yeah. So everything I do is custom. So, you know, I, I really like to go deep into, uh, you know, a prospect call, discovery call, whatever you want to call it and see what's missing, you know, see what they're doing now and really figure out how I can improve it. So, you know, just looking back the past few months, there's not that many projects that are, you know, the exactly the same amongst my e-commerce clients. I think those are a little more similar just because I focus mainly on the four to eight auto automated sequences. And, you know, those packages go from either four to four to 6,000 uh, USD and I'm probably undercharging right there. So yeah, it's usually in a package like that. And it's probably the same. It's similar to when I speak with a coaching with a coaching prospect that, uh, yeah, it's around that four to 6,000 range right there. So, and with that, that kind of entails creating the automations and writing the copy and the strategy as well. But I've been able to outsource some of the, like some of the work that has to do with the software and actually building these flows and automations um, in their ESPs. So yeah, it all works out. And I kind of, I get to focus on the things I want to focus on, which is, which is writing the copy and uh, the strategy. What are some of your tips for thinking and approaching email copy more strategically and maybe even going just from, okay, I write email copy, I'm pretty good at it, to feeling more like a consultant, more of a strategist when you work with clients and then getting better results because uh, you have a strategy in place? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the way to think about that is just to test things out. Um, you know, there are a lot of really great email copywriters out there, but to really nail the strategy part down is to just see what works for every person you work with. And, you know, it can be really time consuming and it can be really confusing sometimes, especially if you're, you know, terrified of numbers like I am. But at the end of the day, it's all about testing everything that works and being confident with what you see. You know, a lot of times, you know, especially when in the beginning of my, my work and you know, creating email strategy, I was just absolutely terrified of, you know, giving advice and yeah, really giving those like consulting tips and giving value. But over time, it's just building that confidence and seeing that, you know, what your work is, you know, is doing and that it's actually performing well. Um, 
and yeah, it, over time, it's just about having that confidence and seeing you know, what's working. So let's talk about deliverability. I think that the dark secret is, or maybe maybe it's not dark, or maybe it's not even a secret, but uh, a lot of the emails that we spend a lot of time writing don't actually land in the inbox, or they you know they get shuffled off and never get read. So what can we do to make sure that the effort we put into you know talking to the people who've signed up for our lists actually gets through? Yeah, email deliverability. Yeah. I- I'm not sure if like everybody knows what that is. It's kind of like one, it's like a mouthful as you just heard, but it's just defined as like, you know, how well your emails are being delivered to your email lists, primary inbox. And it, a lot of people tend to overcomplicate it, but all it is, is making sure that you're sending emails to your list that they find value in and are engaged in. And, you know, that can be kind of defined in different ways, depending on your audience. You know, for some, you know, like in e-commerce, for example, where I do a lot of my work, it's just great discounts and being funny um, and, you know, having great deals for their favorite brands. For some, it's, you know, having really useful content that solves problems. And that's, you know, a lot of the email I write with my health and wellness and dating coaches. That's, you know, the kind of value that I write for them. Uh, for others, you know, it's entertaining copy that they can have like a good laugh at or just be informed about things that they're interested in. And, you know, some of my favorites are like the Daily Hustle and the Morning Brew. They have a really good entertaining copy that is just about like news of the world. And, you know, the Copywriter Club, as I mentioned before, has really great, uh, has really great emails. And it's a mixture of all of those values because you guys, you know, solve email, you know, sorry, you guys send emails that solve problems for other copywriters and are really entertaining. And you guys you know, also mention what's going on with your podcast and groups. And I know that you guys have a great deliverability score because, because I get your emails right into my primary inbox. And it, sometimes you guys break these quote unquote rules when it comes to email deliverability, like putting in, you know, the word free in a subject line or a bunch of numbers, but that's just a testament of, how well your emails are written and how good your strategy is because people are engaging with your emails. They're, they're clicking on them, they're sharing them and they're opening them, rereading them and all of that, which is just uh, another part that adds to really good email deliverability is having your readers engage with those emails. And yeah, you guys are, you're, you guys are crushing it at that part too. What should we definitely not do? I mean, you mentioned, okay, don't say free in the subject line. Don't add a lot of numbers in the subject line. What are some huge mistakes that you've seen copywriters make and maybe even experienced copywriters make that we should avoid, especially with clients? Yeah. So one of the things is just having a good uh, list health, which is, I think it's a big problem with the majority of the clients that I work with. And I think I've seen it also with other copywriters is that there's not that much list cleaning. So a lot of times when you send, you know, emails over time, your open rates, for example, and your engagement is going to drop off. But so if that ever happens, then what you should do is actually clean your list of all the people who aren't engaged uh, with your emails. So there's people who aren't opening, who aren't clicking. Um, The number is really up to you. But I like to do is kind of take everybody off my list who hasn't opened an email in the past 45 days. And really for the next two or three weeks, send emails to my most engaged list. That way my deliverability score, it rises 
and it signals to the ISPs and to the spam filters and everything else that you know my emails are get are valuable and you know, people want to open it, so they better send it to the primary inbox. And yeah, I think list health is uh, is probably the number one thing. So how do you deal with the mental, I guess there's a mindset issue of, you know, saying goodbye to say, you know, several hundred, or maybe even in some cases, several thousand people who have signed up for your list. It, it's, it's, I mean, we did this recently where, you know, we, we took a bunch of people off of our list who hadn't opened up anything in say three or four months, but there's kind of like this psychological hurdle where you feel like you've earned the right to have these people on your list and just you know, getting rid of them, uh, it, it hurts. So how, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, it does suck. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I I remember even having an argument with a, a client recently. He was like, I'm about to lose, you know, five to 6,000 people off this list. Why should we clean them? Like we could re-engage them. But, you know, at that point, they these people who are unengaged, they haven't even opened an email in a good two months, you know, 60 days or so. And a good like mindset to have is that one, if you keeping them on your list actually just hinders your deliverability score terribly, because if you keep sending them emails, eventually they're going to send you to spam and that's going to trigger the, the spam filters even more. So then even the people who are uh, slightly engaged to your list, your emails are going to be sent to, to spam or promotions. And, you know, the best way to think about it is that it's like, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a good analogy, but it's like uh, cutting the dead weight off so you can succeed. And if they haven't opened your emails and they're not engaging and they're maybe even unsubscribing, that's a good thing because if they don't want to hear from you, there's a really bad, you know, there's a really good chance that they're, they, you know, they don't want to purchase your product or service. So you're actually saving yourself a lot of time and, you know, you, you spend money, um, based on the amount of people on your list through your ESP. So you're actually saving yourself a couple of dollars as well. But in the long run, you're, you're ensuring you have a good deliverability score and your emails are being sent to primary. And that's the important thing because if, you know, if your emails aren't being read, then it really doesn't matter how persuasive or compelling your copy is or how life-changing your, your service or product is. It's like, um, if no one's reading those emails and they're all in spam and promo, then you know it's it's a bit of a waste. Okay, so let's assume that you know anybody who's listening is writing you know engaging emails. Uh, they've cleaned up their list, so they're not sending it out to anybody who doesn't want to receive it. What else can they be doing to make sure that the email is going into the inbox? Yeah, it's just making sure that you're giving your readers value in things that they want to have, um, and I think. I forgot who said it, but I knew it was a well-known copywriter or marketer who said the best subject line is your your sender name. So instead of just focusing on like having a really good subject line or even like you know anything else, it's to make sure that your readers looking forward to your message and looking forward to who they're getting the emails from. So if you can figure out what they value, you know whether that's funny stories or entertaining copy, or just having really great discounts or products. Um, you know, once you figure that out, then your open rates and your deliverability is just going to skyrocket. And yeah, the results are just going to speak for themselves. And um, yeah, once you figure out the the kind of stuff that they like and reading, and um, you know what works, it it kind of sets you up. 
Okay, you mentioned automations, and I don't want to skip over it because it's part of the service that you offer, and you mentioned that you outsource part of that. Um, can you just talk a little bit about like what automations you're talking about, what that includes for your clients? Should you know, should other email copywriters add that to their packages as well? Yeah, uh, definitely, definitely. I mean, automations is one. It's probably one of the most important parts of of any business. You know, I'm a big believer in like email isn't dead, and emails like the you know like the number one thing in the business. And learning how to create and craft well written emails and have a really sophisticated email strategy, I think it's important in any copywriter's arsenal, especially an email copywriter. Um, yeah, it's great that you can write really good emails, but if you can back up to why you wrote this particular email and what maybe why you uh, place it in this part of the sequence or in the strategy, it increases your value more as you know in your service. Um, and the the sequence that I like to focus on most, I guess I am a specialist in, is the welcome sequence, and I love doing that just because. Um, it really allows me to get to know the client even further and understand you know, who they are, why they do what they do, and really all the unique quirky things about them and convey it in their welcome sequence and to give their, their new subscriber like an awesome introduction into this new business, into this new business that they are just acquainted with. You know, when we talk about adding value and, you know, bringing strategy to the table, would you ever recommend copywriters to also uh, dabble in the technical side and maybe help customers set up, you know, an automation in active campaign or Entreport or Infusionsoft? Or would you just say, hey, stick to copy and let somebody else handle the tech side? Yeah, I think that's really up to the, you know, to the copywriter. Um, I know several copywriters who really don't mind doing the tech things. I know for me, uh, for a long time, I was okay with it, but then it ended up becoming a big hassle just because it was a lot of you know, drag and dropping. It was a lot of creating these very detailed segments and things like that. I think it's good to, to do for, for a while, you know, just to understand um, you know, how these things are made and just how important they are and how they work. But, you know, I wouldn't say, you know, this should be the number one thing that you should do and stick to it. Um, I know for me, I enjoyed it for a while. And I actually thought it was going to be something I was going to do forever. Um, but the, the moment I, I outsourced it and was able to give that to someone else, I started to, you know, have more mental energy to focus on writing the copy and, creating really good strategy around these sequences and with my clients. So I think everyone should give it a, uh, should give it a try, but I wouldn't say it's like, you know, it shouldn't, uh, you know, if you don't like it then definitely pass it off to someone else. And that's pretty much everything when it comes to having your own business. Okay. We're jumping back in here to talk briefly about email deliverability. <laughs> Let's talk about email deliverability. Not totally sexy topic, but really important and something that Francis has done well to show up as a consultant and a problem solver with his clients and not just necessarily 
the the wordsmith who's going to write these um you know entertaining emails yeah i think there's maybe two things that we can mention here i mean we've seen a lot of people start to talk a little bit about email deliverability and i don't know if that's because you know we're thinking about our own lists and so you know we start to be exposed to these kinds of things but um a lot of people are definitely talking about what does it take to get into the inbox and noting that just because you've got a decent rating at your email service provider that you're hitting send that uh emails aren't necessarily getting into an inbox. They're not even getting to a spam folder. Sometimes Google may decide not to deliver them at all. And so uh, some of the suggestions that Francis made here, I think are really helpful. And uh, there are other things that, you know, we can be doing as well to have Google see the emails that we send be part of a conversation and not just, you know, marketing blasts or, uh, you know, that we're constantly inundating our audiences with stuff they really don't want. But I think the other side of that too is that, Francis has made this part of what he offers his clients and in specializing in this way in something that's not really a, a copywriting skill set, he really sets himself apart as a copywriter uh, in the email space. Yeah. And I do think that email deliverability will become um, more and more important if you are an email copywriter that you will need to know about that, at least so you can advise and answer questions for your clients. Um, and the more you know, the more you can charge, right? Because you're showing up as this expert who can really help them solve some big problems around people on their list not opening their emails. So I do think it's worth paying more and more attention to that and focusing on that so that you can become an expert. And you can start small. If you work with any client on an email project, uh, you can ask them like, hey, do you know do you know what your email deliverability is or what's like your reputation? Um, what is the term that Francis used as far as figuring out your score? I think if you can just learn the basics so you can start asking your clients questions to see, do they need some help? And could you offer them help even if you're not an expert and even if you're not at Francis's level yet, you can still guide them and pull resources for them and help them um, and get experience that you could potentially offer and charge more for in the future. Yeah. And maybe email deliverability isn't your thing. Maybe you don't write emails, but there are other things that are sort of attached to a lot of the kinds of projects that we work on. So, you know, somebody who may be working on sales pages might get into analytics and looking at, you know, how do you do uh, testing and the things that are kind of around that, um, or somebody who is, you know, working in content and, you know, creating work like case studies or, you know, even blog posts, really understanding things like site engagement and people who are clicking away from uh, the articles that we have or, uh, you know, so there are all of these other skill sets that kind of surround what we do as part of marketing and bringing even just one or two to the table as a copywriter can make you a much better service provider for your clients and may even impact the way that you can charge for clients and, and the projects that you work on. And as uh, Todd Brown has said to us recently, you know, we, so many companies are investing heavily and into their list and paying for leads on their list. And, and so you're paying money for that when you're running ads. And so why, you know, we should care about email deliverability because if we're paying for people to, um, you know, jump on our list, uh, then we should care about whether or not they're receiving the emails. So again, it just will become more and more critical, especially as you're building a larger platform or working with clients that have larger platforms. And we talk a lot about habits also on the podcast. We've certainly done that a lot recently. And it's something that I've been thinking a lot about 
this past year. But uh, Francis also has a couple of odd habits. Uh, you know, he's part of the 5 a.m. club, which is maybe isn't that odd, but he loves cold showers. And I know we, we mentioned that a little bit, but do you ever do the cold shower thing, Kara? Yeah, it was funny. I was reading the transcript from this interview and I was like, I think I honed in on the cold shower too, because I do not do cold showers. I think maybe I tried it after we talked to Francis. I was like, well, if Francis does it, he thinks it's fun. I should try it. But that is not my thing. I like hot showers, steamy showers, hot bathtubs. Um, like I don't, I don't do cold for fun. That's not fun for me, but I, I respect it. And you know what, if I need a burst of energy, maybe, maybe I should do it. So I will keep an open mind. Yeah. The only time I like a cold shower is if I've been exercising, you know, my core temperature is way up and I need to cool down or, you know, I don't want to sweat in the shower, but at the same time, I also, I'm not, I'm not a fan. So, um, yeah, you, you can, Francis can keep that to himself. Uh, <laughs> you do you, you do you. I'll, yeah. I'll, take a I'll, cold showers. I'll do the exercise. I'll get up early. I might even do lemon in the water occasionally, but cold showers not for me. Okay, let's go back to our interview with Francis and talk a little bit more about how he markets his business. You know, I know we've talked about it in conversations in a think tank, and I think it's fair to say that you don't like social media. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. I am almost anti-social media, which is pretty ironic since I I have two Facebook accounts. So it's like, I have like my business one and then I have a personal one, but I actually don't spend a whole lot of time on it. Um, even looking at it now, you know, I had to download it to kind of see what was going on in the copywriter club. And, you know, <laughs> I was like scrolling through it on my phone and I was like, ah, it's kind of giving me a headache right now. So that's not even kind of, I, I don't use social media that much. And when it comes to like, getting new clients it's a lot of it's through referrals and through these masterminds that, that i'm in or in these membership groups so a lot of the times when i get a new client it a lot of it is just from the relationships i have and that's just me leveraging something that i like to do which is just talk to people and hang out and connect yeah you probably won't find me you won't find me a whole lot on instagram or or on Facebook, and I don't have a Twitter or a Snapchat or, you know, a TikTok, you know, God forbid. Um, and so I was just kind of uh, hanging on to the strength that I have, which is connecting with people and creating these relationships. Yeah. So I think it's good to point that out because oftentimes we feel like we do have to be everywhere on social media to have a legit sustainable business. And we don't, and you're proof of that. But what I also like about what you're doing is you are figuring out other ways to market your business and to build um, build your authority and to get more exposure too. So can you talk about what you have done and even what maybe you've invested in or outsourced to show up in more places? And I know you've been on more podcasts recently. Can you just talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, like probably the number one thing that I've invested in is these memberships. Um, you know, and, you know, I'm in the underground and I'm also in the think tank and I'm in a few other groups. And, you know, the great thing about being in these groups is that the people who host these opportunities, they're people who, you know, you guys are in the same group. So you've connected over the same things and maybe you've even, uh, you know, had conversations with them and it makes getting that opportunity even easier just because there's like that trust factor there. And so being part of these 
you know, unique groups that are very specialized, I think is important for anyone trying to get higher quality work. And then, you know, the past few months, my main thing is to get on more podcasts. And, you know, it's kind of a, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of funny. You know, I, in the think tank, there's always that thing of like, you know, what is your one thing for this week? And, you know, my one thing for the past like three months was like to get on more podcasts. So I was, I've been able to, uh, you know, work with Make who I guess is a, she's a fellow Think Tank alum about podcast guesting. And I've been working a whole lot with her team on how to get more podcasts, how to speak better on on these podcasts, and, you know, how to send out pitches and everything like that. So that's been an awesome investment in, uh, in my business, just because I'm also learning on learning about how to create, you know, better relationships and connect with more people, which I think is invaluable. So let's get specific on what's working and maybe what's what hasn't worked, you know, as you start to pitch podcasts. So I know you've just uh, recorded a couple of appearances. So obviously some of the pitches you're sending out or, or the people that you're connecting with is working. What exactly are you sending them to land these guest spots? Yeah, so... Uh, you know, with these pitches, I know myself and Mayke's team, you know, we do a whole lot of research on uh, the podcast hosts on either their previous guests, the previous episodes, um, kind of overarching theme that they're going for in, in the current season. And just shifting my pitch to what's going on with them right now. So I don't really like to... We're not trying to you know, jump in into a conversation that doesn't really, you know, I can't really bring a whole lot of value to, but it's about making each pitch personalized. And that's, yeah, I think that's super powerful. You know, I've, you know, read the pitches and we've gone over them and it's really great to see that, you know, these hosts can, can understand that we're putting a lot of effort into these pitches and showing that we care about, you know, what they do and, giving their audience as much value uh, as I can. So that's, you know, the, I guess, one of the things that's helped out a whole lot. But then also saying yes to everything. You know, there's, I've been invited to be a guest on several podcasts who have just started or, you know, they've been, they just started within the last six months or so and they don't have a lot of episodes. But, you know, that alone, it's almost like, you know, like the start of like my freelance career, you know, just having taken on these, kind of smaller projects or these startup podcasts and just being part of it. You know, it's been a blast so far just because I'm getting more experience and, um, you know, building up my portfolio, which has helped a whole lot because if it shows that I've been on these two podcasts, they can hear me speak and, you know, hear what I'm talking about and it gives them a better understanding of what I do. So, um, yeah, I think those are two big things right there. Yeah. I remember hearing Gary V speaking about how he, at least at one point was saying yes to any podcast interview and his whole attitude was like, you know, if 10 people listen to me, that's, that's great. Um, and I was thinking, you know, if Gary, if Gary Vaynerchuk can say yes to everything, I think I can say yes to everything too. But I think that's a really good attitude when it comes to, to marketing, especially early on. Um, can you just follow up with one final tip for pitching beyond like, yes, do your research and work with a team like Make team or other teams that are similar that can help 
and then say yes to as many opportunities as possible. But is there anything that has surprised you in those pitches that has worked really well, whether it's like something new that you're doing or something different that you're doing that could help someone who's pitching on their own right now? Yeah, for sure. I think uh, the thing I'm really surprised about is just how detailed each of these pitches are in understanding the the theme of the podcast and what they've been doing with their last few episodes. It's crazy, you know, reading these these pitches and saying, you know, I absolutely love, you know, your guest in episode 53 and how you dive deep into, you know, this topic and talk about that topic and how I could bring value to, you know, in this, uh, you know, in this subject that they were talking about. And I absolutely love that. It's, it just shows, I think it just, you know, surprises the podcast host of like how much, you know, how much time is, has been, uh, has been invested into this you know, single pitch. And yeah, I think that would be probably like the number one thing that I'm like most surprised about and that I'm most proud to be a part of. That wraps up our interview with Francis. Is there anything else that caught your attention in the conversation, Rob? Obviously, Francis has chosen pitching podcasts as a way to market his business. And we've we've had some really good past podcasts about podcasting and you know pitching podcasts and the kinds of messages that uh, we should be sharing there. And it's something that you and I have encouraged a lot of people in our groups to do because podcasts are just a, a great mechanism for getting your ideas out into the world. And if you choose them well, you know, you're, you're thinking about your target market, the people that you want to work with. And so not necessarily going on copywriting podcasts, but you know, if you're say writing for SaaS, there are dozens of SaaS podcasts, or if you're, you know, working with coaches, there are tons of coaching podcasts and sharing ideas about marketing there really good way to get the word out. And yeah, so I admire Francis for going all in on this thing. Because when you contrast that to his approach to social media, it you know he's working on the thing that works for him and he's ignoring the stuff that doesn't. Yeah. And I'm with Francis. I kind of have a very similar marketing system in place where it's pitching podcasts, speaking on podcasts, and then it's showing up in Instagram to build the brand on Instagram, but also to promote the podcast. Because if you're actively pitching podcasts, you need to also promote those somewhere. And so um, I like that Francis kind of has that same... Uh, pairing of pitching and then showing up on Instagram. And the cool thing about Francis is he is very clear that he doesn't do well with social media. And, um, you know, as far as like, it doesn't energize him. I mean, these are not his own words, but like, it doesn't help him. (laughs) It doesn't make him feel better about life. And I feel a similar way towards social media, but he's, um, you know, he also knows it's a marketing tool. And so he has invested and is working with social media teams so that he still has that marketing engine running and it's still, he's still showing up and building his visibility, but he handed that part off. And it's just a good reminder that we can hand off the things that we do not want to do or anything that we feel like uh, is really important because it's where our ideal customers hang out, but it doesn't work for us. It drains us. It's distracting. Um, And that's not for everyone. Some people like actively like to show up and, and run their own marketing, which is cool too. But I think he's done a great job of marketing heavily, building his visibility over the past year without taking it all on himself. And so it's okay to do that and outsource these parts of our business that maybe are distracting at times. 
yeah, knowing what works for you in your business is the key here, right? You know, if, if being on Instagram brings in the right clients and you enjoy those conversations, then sure, lean in or, or the same with Twitter or LinkedIn or wherever the, the thing is. But it's also okay to ignore all of that. Uh, we know copywriters who don't have websites. We know copywriters who don't engage in any kind of social media and they're doing just fine. It really depends on the kind of business that you're building, who your clients are, and your ability to get them with or without you know, whatever the popular marketing tactic is right now. So bravo to Francis for leaning in on what works. So we want to thank Francis Nyan for joining us for this episode. If you want to connect with Francis or get on his mailing list, visit his website, storiesandcopy.com. Francis is a really good storyteller and every email that he sends out is a, is a really good read. So make sure that you check those out. That's the end of another episode of the Copywriter Club podcast. Our intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. If you've been looking for a mastermind group to help you do more with your business in the coming year, the Copywriter Think Tank is open for a few additional members. Learn more by visiting copywriterthinktank.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Copywriters coming together to help the world write better. Copy and make more money. Kira and Rob. So...